This is the Mickey Miles and More podcast. Your one stop for information on Disney races, Disney vacations, Disney theme parks, and more. Now, here are your hosts for the Mickey Miles and More podcast Michelle Scribner McLean, Chris Eliopoulos, and Mike Scopa. Hi, everybody. This is Mike. I wanted to um, talk about uh, a certain attraction on this week's show. Um, we think about all the latest attractions that have come on board over the past several years, specifically things like Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. You've got Rise of the Resistance. You've got Ratatouille. And pretty soon you're going to have Tron. And you're going to have Guardians of the Galaxy Rewind. Um, all very, very popular but all these attractions really owe a debt of gratitude to a very special attraction that pretty much has been always heralded as the most important attraction ever built in theme park history. And we're going to talk about it on this edition of the Mickey Miles and More podcast as I give Chris and Michelle a much needed week off. And what is this attraction? It's none other than Pirates of the Caribbean. Not Caribbean, Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, this may take more than one show because of all the information that I've been digging into and finding out about this attraction. So let's see what happens. Um, I will tell you that from time to time, I hear a lot from folks who visit Walt Disney World many times and for most of these people they have certain traditions that they follow on every trip and these traditions can range from such things as probably uh, the first park they visit or the last park they visit the first restaurant where they eat their first meal on their trip or even the first or last attraction they experience on their trip and it's interesting to note that for many people, the attraction mentioned most of the time as either the first or last attraction they visit and the one attraction that leads the pack way more than any other is always Pirates of the Caribbean. And, you know, it, it's been around for, geez, it's been around for going on almost 55 years. It's still, it's still a fan favorite for all ages. And it's funny, uh, my nine-year-old granddaughter, hi, Leah, if you're listening. Uh, Leah will be visiting Walt Disney World for her very first time this summer. And when I was talking with her, one of the, right at the top of her list of attractions is Pirates of the Caribbean. And that says a lot because she's a big-time Belle fan and a big-time Frozen fan. She may be the biggest Frozen fan in the world. So thinking that she may have questions for me, I thought it would be a good idea to brush up on my Pirates of the Caribbean knowledge just in case, just in case she had questions. And along the way, I thought, whoa, this is a story that's worth telling. So here we are in this. And I got to say, it's probably part one. It's that involved. Uh, part one of the journey of Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. I'll, I'll begin to tell you the story of why this attraction, even in 2022, is still recognized as the attraction that forever historically changed the landscape of the theme park industry. So, if you are ready, before we get started, sit still, 
keep your hands inside the boat and hold on tight. So, of course, our story begins in California. Um, a few years after Disneyland opened in uh, 1955, Walt Disney's ambitious plans for his theme park were bursting. And within a few years, he started talking about plans to expand the Disneyland park. And this major area of expansion that was right at the top of his list was an area to be called New Orleans Square. And uh, the area was to represent and be themed after 19th century Louisiana. You see, Walt Disney had always felt that the Louisiana Purchase was the greatest real estate deal in history. And in this way, he felt he could pay tribute to that $11 million deal. By the way, I think I mentioned this later on too, New Orleans Square cost $15 million to build. So Walt Disney gathered his lead Imagineers and told them of his idea. And under their direction, they, along with Walt, started putting on paper all these designs for this new area of the park. Now the major idea leading the pack was to build an attraction that would be dedicated to pirates. You know, Walt had found that the world of pirates was a big thing in Louisiana in the 19th century. And he felt that having such a dedicated attraction would be popular among his guests. So the um, original concept was to excavate a huge hole where New Orleans was to be built. And that excavation would begin the construction of an underground pirate wax museum accompanied by a, uh, a, a, a waterside town to keep the figures company, the wax figures company. Um, but the, this wax museum, I guess it was probably something that Walt was influenced by when he visited uh, Madame Tussaud's wax museum in London. So the plans were uh, was to have not just pirates, but to have a little voodoo flavor and uh, throw in some ghosts and vampires as well. So Walt assigned Imagineer Mark Davis, known as one of Walt Disney's nine old men, to begin sketching concepts for the attraction. But um, I think before we get into uh, discussion around how Mark Davis approached this assignment, we need to take a step back. I will tell you that all the concept drawings were finalized, and in 1961, construction was ready to go. But we have to interrupt this part of the story because construction was also interrupted. You see, right around the time construction of the Pirates of the Caribbean was to begin, Walt Disney was contacted by General Electric. Remember, this is 1961. So if you're a fan of Disney history, you very well know what happened next. General Electric asked Walt if he would partner with them in putting together several attractions for the upcoming 1964 World's Fair in Flushing Meadows, New York. You would think that Walt uh, would normally put his theme park ahead of any such request, but for many years he had ideas for attractions that unfortunately could not be built because the technology nor the funding to do the research and development for these attractions just wasn't in his budget. 
But with this request from General Electric and their checkbook, Walt could dust off those plans and ideas and pretty much bring them to life. So the Imagineers, pretty much all the Imagineers in Disneyland were pulled off their projects, and especially those who were working on the Pirates project. They were all assigned to focus on the 1964 World's Fair. They had just about three years to design and build several attractions, and it was time to start. According to several folks, every new piece of work for Disneyland, like I said, not just the Pirates' attraction, every, piece, every new piece of work was put on the shelf to concentrate on the 1964 World's Fair. So pretty much all development in Disneyland came to a halt. Neither Walt Disney nor his Imagineers would ever imagine that this attention to the 1964 World's Fair would change the Disney company's art of storytelling forever. In fact, on a personal note, I've always felt that the Walt Disney Company and its theme parks owe a lot to whomever in General Electric made that call to Walt Disney in 1961. But I'll get into that later. It was during the 1964 New York World's Fair that Disney created specific technologies that would live beyond 1964. All these technologies were part of the attractions built for the New York World's Fair. The first attraction is one I'm sure you're all familiar with. It was the Small World attraction that would bring guests on a special boat ride system and gaze at hundreds of dancing dolls depicting children from all over the world who represented their respective countries. These dancing dolls were the first generation of audio animatronics. This technology was taken to a higher level with the creation of the great moments with Mr. Lincoln and, of course, the Carousel of Progress. In these attractions, the stars were the audio animatronic figures who soon became familiar to all their guests who not only saw these figures move, but also heard them speak. So let's review. Uh, the two of the technologies that were born at the 1964 New York World's Fair was first a boat ride system that delivered far more guests per hour than if they had to walk through the attraction, and of course the development of audio animatronics to bring figures to life. The General Electric pavilions for the um, 1964 World's Fair were very, very popular. When the fair closed, Walt had his Imagineers carefully pack up all the attractions because he had plans to bring them to Disneyland. Okay, um, remember, a f uh, remember a few minutes ago when I interrupted our discussion on how construction of the Pirates attraction was about to begin when it was halted thanks to the New York World's Fair? Well, here we are a few years later in 1965, and now with these new technologies, namely the boat ride system and the audio animatronics, Walt started to think that perhaps that walk-through Pirates Wax Museum concept needed to be revisited. Walt decided to combine technologies. Instead of a walkthrough, the Pirates attraction 
would now be a boat ride in which guests would float by audio animatronic figures. But before Walt could actually truly envision what this attraction would look like, he needed to see some artwork. This is where we come back to the matter of Mark Davis and his concept art. Now, originally, the uh, bottom floor of the uh, New Orleans Square construction was supposed to be a walkthrough of 19th century New Orleans, the aforementioned Wax Museum. The Wax Museum was supposed to represent the seedy underbelly of New Orleans with scenes of famous legendary pirates from history and show the guests some realistic scenes of pirates' life. Now, Mark Davis started making sketches of Blackbeard and Captain Kidd and Captain Morgan and other, other pirates. The drawings, if, you, if you're in Disneyland and you go to the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction, the drawings that you pass on the way to boarding the, uh, the attraction uh, are the works of Mark Davis uh, when he began sketching pirate portraits when he was doing research for the attraction. But during his research, he discovered the true story of what pirates were all about. And to say the least, these guys were not your model citizens or heroes or your Jack Sparrows. They were thieves. They were hired killers. Most of them did not meet their death on the end of a sword in brave combat. Most of them died from venereal disease. So, so much for the glamour of pirate life. So now the challenge was to put a different slant on the attraction. And Mark Davis went to work to add a humorous touch to his artwork. So the second effort of sketching from Mark Davis had a comedic element that was missing in the first effort. The new drawings contained light-hearted caricatures. Uh, he used bright, color, bright colors and very definite facial expressions. Now, so Mark Davis would throw a lot of sketches at Walt. And Walt would go through every one, and he would discard some. He would approve of others. Finally, they had a pile of approved sketches. And the next uh, thing was to figure out uh, which scenes would be agreed upon. And then once that happened, you had all these pictures of you had these pictures of pirates. You had these scenes. Now you had to figure out, okay, um, how would this best play out? using the scenes and, the, um, and the, the sketches of the pirates. So, remember, we're talking about the Walt Disney Company. We're talking about a company that made cartoons. We're talking about a company that made movies. We're talking about a company that told stories. So, just like as a cartoon or a movie, the scenes were mixed around and put together so they would work in a very neatly put-together storyboard fashion. So they... They put a storyboard together to figure out how the attraction would run. Okay, so with everything in place, New Orleans Square construction began. It would eventually uh, cost $15 million to build that new area of Disneyland. It became, uh, uh, by the way, New Orleans Square, it became the very first theme park area to have three levels. Uh, we had that top level. Eventually, that would be an apartment for Walt Disney and, and, of course, Club 33. You had a ground floor level with all the shops, and then you had the bottom level, which was to be that original concept of a wax museum. That's where the attraction would be. Um, 
let's step back a little bit because I, I think it would be really a, a surprise for you to know that the Enchanted Tiki Room in Disneyland also played a part in the history of the Pirates of the Caribbean. The host of the Enchanted Tiki Room, Jose, the very talkative parrot, was the very first audio animatronic figure built for Disneyland, even though animatronics had been built earlier for the 64 World's Fair. And it is said in some circles that the opening of the Enchanted Tiki Room in Disneyland was historic because it introduced forever into the theme park industry the technology of audio animatronics. So remember, the audio animatronic intervention along with the boat ride system was very influential in the scrapping of the walkthrough concept of a wax museum for the Pirates attraction. And oh, by the way, you know Jose, that pirate, parrot? <laughs> if you go to the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction in Walt Disney World in the Magic Kingdom, just outside that Caribbean plaza, you'll also see another talkative parrot welcoming you to the attraction. One thing to keep in mind is that theme park developers are always concerned with capacity, always concerned about making as many guests happy as possible every single day. So in order to do this, they, their objective is to get as many guests as possible through every attraction each and every day. And if you think of it, a walkthrough is by no means the optimal way of achieving a large capacity of visitors through an attraction. A walkthrough does not give the park the control of moving guests through the attraction as well as a boat ride can. A boat ride will move more guests per hour through the attraction than a walkthrough. Thus, the boat ride system was designed for the Pirates of the Caribbean. It was modeled after the one used for the Small World attraction at the 1964 World's Fair. I wanted to uh, mention uh, a fellow by the name of Claude Coates. Uh, Claude Coates was a uh, he was an artist, an animator. He was a set designer. Uh, he was he was a master imagineer, and he's not been often mentioned when you hear someone talking about the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. But he was one of the lead designers and imagineers for the attractions that appeared at the 1964 World's Fair, and he was the lead designer for the Pirates. He also had a hand in the design of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, as well as Epcot. He did all the layout for the Pirates attraction, and the, the layouts were based on the approved sketches, Walt's approved sketches put together by Mark Davis. Now there's another Imagineer, Blaine Gibson, who was in charge of putting together the sculptures that brought Mark Davis' pirate sketches to life. First with miniatures, then life-size figures before turning them into audio animatronic performers. So, you know, we're getting deep into this, and there's a little bit of trivia here that uh, Walt, Walt's hand was very much on this attraction, and he personally cast the voice actors to each pirate figure in the attraction. And the attraction was very much the last attraction Walt Disney would have his hands on before he passed away. Now, later on, I'll tell you a little bit more about the voices that you hear when you go through the attraction. It was Imagineer Alice Davis who was responsible for making costumes for all the pirate figures in the attraction, or all the figures in the attraction. 
she was not told to do this, but Alice decided that for every figure, she would make two complete sets of costumes. She was afraid that the workings inside these figures, cables and hydraulic fluid or whatever, could possibly go crazy, become compromised, and damage the costumes with things like oil, maybe even burn the costumes. So she made two sets for every figure. You know, this idea paid off because about a month and a half after the attraction opened in 1967, a small fire broke out and sprinklers went on and ruined costumes on several other figures. The damage was easily fixed. But, of course, the problem was, oh, my God, where were we going to get, you know, costumes to put back on the, on the figures? They figured it would take a week or two before such costumes could be put together. Nope. Alice provided the Imagineers with the backup set of costumes, and instead of the attraction being shut down for a week or two, it was shut down for only one day. Now, here's an interesting tidbit I came across that I never, I never knew of this. Uh, it explains how the attraction's cavern sections came about. These would be uh, the areas that you would see at the beginning of the attraction. Walt Disney often visited an, an attraction in California called the Carlsbad Carlsbad Caverns, which is an enormous series of underground caverns that have been carved out by nature. Walt stayed overnight in one of those caverns. He stayed. He was up all night, and he was very much influenced by how nature carved out those caverns, and. By him spending that night in that cavern, that led him to think, you know, that's what I want the first part of the Pirates attraction to look like. The, that night that he spent in the caverns led to the design of the first part of the Pirates attraction before your boat goes down, down that water slide. All right, the next person I want to talk about who was part of the team that put together the Pirates attraction is a name that some of you may recognize. His name is Yale Gracie, an Imagineer who, he was very instrumental in the design of the Haunted Mansion. He designed um, the famous fire scene in the Pirates attraction where, you know, you go through the town and they're all singing and there's flames going and they're all singing. But what's really interesting about that scene is that the Imagineers, Yale Gracie in particular, was so good in putting together the fire effects that they made them look so real that they decided to program that to program those fire effects to be turned off in the event of a real fire. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, there was another te technique that was brought back from the World's Fair. It's talked about as a technique. I'm not sure if, it, if it's really that a, that big of a deal but it's a special they're calling it a special effect uh it came from the new york world's fair sky dome spectacular uh, that's the uh that was the pavilion that told the story of the search for new sources of energy you know i keep re referring to the new york world's fair and i think it would be helpful if maybe i talk a little bit about the general electric's progress land pavilion the official theme of this pavilion was to exhibit the ways in which electricity was put to use for human betterment and how it would change our world and our lives. It was a three-story pavilion. It was about 80 feet tall and it had a 200-foot diameter dome on top. Now, the now see if you can picture this. The exterior of the dome was crowned with more than 1,000 lights 
and it provided a special nighttime effect in which the entire roof would seem to turn. The lights are programmed in a sweeping rotary motion and it produced an impressive display of changing colors. Now, if you happen to do some research, Google this um, pavilion, Progress Land, New York World's Fair, 1964. If you Google it and you're lucky enough to come across a color photograph of this dome taken at night, there will be two words that will come to mind. And those two words are Spaceship Earth. Trust me. So visitors would enter uh, this pavilion on a moving ramp, and it would take them directly to the second floor, where we have the Carousel of Progress. There was a, another ramp that would take visitors from the Carousel of Progress to the third floor, where they would pass through a corridor of mirrors illustrating advanced work in General Electric Laboratories. Then the guests would enter a huge observation area directly beneath the dome, and it was called, I think it was called the Sky Dome Spectacular. The Sky Dome Spectacular is, quote, the epic story of man's efforts to control and use new energy sources of nature for the benefit of all. That's what it was heralded as. And the, the visitors would pass onto a dome terrace and there would be lightning flashes overhead on a huge projection screen. Um, they would pass through the arch to the ground floor and then they would see a city spread before them. And I believe this was called Medallion City. They would, it showed homes, stores, town halls, civic, industrial buildings, blah, blah, blah. But the special effect was that it made part of this journey through this pavilion appear that it was at night, nighttime. Uh, the Imagineers took this effect and brought it to the attraction, to the Pirates attraction, to make it feel like you were traveling in the moonlight in the Caribbean. So that was a little background information on the uh, Progress Land Pavilion that the Walt Disney Company and General Electric put together for the 1964 World's Fair. I hate to say this, but we're sort of out of time. We've been going for a while, and we're going to have to continue this on the next show. We need to talk about a sp specific Imagineer who joined the uh, team who may have had the biggest influence on this attraction. We'll also talk about the voices, and we'll also talk about what happened on the opening, how they opened up the attraction at Disneyland, and of course, we'll talk about how it made its way east towards Orlando and Walt Disney World. But that will be the end of part one. And so for my co-hosts, Michelle Scribner-McLean and Chris Eliopoulos, this is Mike Scopa saying thank you for listening. We'll see you on the road and in the box. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode of the Mickey Miles and More podcast. For all of us here at the Mickey Miles and More podcast, this is Rick Gray saying thanks for listening and all your support. And until next time, we'll see you on the road. Dead